I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Kevin Pike of Shotzi Wines on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Very nice to see you again. So you used to work for Skernick, and when you were working for Michael Skernick, you came and you gave a really cool interview, and now you're back, but this time you, you have your own company. Yeah, I worked for Skernick for 14 years, as I think you know, and when I decided to move on, a long dream of mine had been to have a farm. My grandparents had a farm in Iowa, and um, when I was a kid, I would go out there for the summers and spend a lot of time out there, and this idea I've had for... For years and years and years, I just couldn't figure out how to do it, where to do it, what I would be doing. And one idea was making cheese. And, you know, I was like, because I'm fascinated by cheese. I love cheese. And then I was like, okay, but I know nothing about cheese making. And I don't know anything about, you know, kind of raising the types of animals I would need to have to, to make the type of cheeses that I wanted to make. But that was one long pipe dream that never really came to be. And then and because of part of my personal life circumstances, I kind of ended up in the Hudson Valley. So I wanted to look around up there, and I was able to find a farm in the Hudson Valley about 100 miles north of the city. And I was able to buy 78 acres up there, and I decided that wine really wouldn't be... I, I didn't think I could ever be very happy with the type of wine that I could make there, because I didn't know what the terroir was like, what grape varieties to plant. I just I didn't know enough, but there's a long tradition in this part of the Hudson Valley and throughout the Hudson Valley of bourbon and spirits making, and then also cider making. And so that was kind of the idea. So I bought the farm. And then when I kind of saw the horizon at Skernick, I was like, okay, I'm going to invest kind of everything I have into this farm project. And Johannes Leitz, who's a good friend of mine, as I, I think you know, he kind of, I told him, I said, look, I just want you to be prepared. I'm, I'm going to resign and, and leave. And he kind of said in his typical way, you know, Kevin, you're an idiot. This is this is ridiculous. You should think about a way to make money while you get the farm going. I think we should talk about doing something together. You've talked a long time about different ways to import wine, different models that might work. Why don't you think about that a little bit and maybe we could do something together. And so that was kind of the the impetus for the idea to start Shotzi. So I thought about it and came back to him with some ideas and tried to break down how I sold ways in which I thought that a different company might be different or offer something that wasn't already in the market. And um, and he said, I think this is great. I want to join and and let's start something. And so that's how the company came to be. Schatzi is a German term of endearment. It means little treasure. It's what parents call their children. It's what people in the United States name their dogs. It's a, I mean, it's a pretty well-known name, but it was, it was always something that he and I called each other. And as a joke, totally as a joke, because Johannes's wife, Gabby, would always just kind of cringe every time I said, hey, Shotzi, because it's not what you, you call your lover that, you wouldn't call your friend that. So Robin, my wife, when we were trying to think of a name, she's like, you should call it Shotzi. And that's how the, the name came to be. What did the market look like when you were making this move? I think the market had been fairly similar for quite a while. And you know, even back into 2004 and 2005, I remember having conversations with many different producers from different countries, not just from Germany, but Austria and Spain and Italy and and talking about, you know, how are the how are these different models working in the United States? And to me it seemed that a lot of the models were under a lot of stress. And and I was trying to identify why are they under stress. And when I was at Skernik, I was trying to then also change our model there a little bit to attend to the stress 
the stresses that they had. If you go way back, you know, back in, into the 50s and the 60s, and you have people like Schumacher, and you have Alexis Lachine, and those types of people that brought a lot of interesting wines into the market, what morphed out of that was what I would call kind of the great estates model of importing wine, which would be a larger company that has fairly famous estates, larger volumes of wine, typically. They still exist today. There's a lot of mergers of those going on back and forth. They would have the Grandmark Champagne Houses, etc., the famous people that we all know and all wanted. But they would also then, they built larger portfolios. And, and what was good about that model was that it, it had a lot to offer you know, some of the other markets that were not necessarily New York or San Francisco. You would have a large company that could offer you, you know, famous wines that you would need to have on your wine list or in, in a retail shop. And what I liked about that model was that they always invested in inventory, which I thought was key. And what I didn't necessarily like about the model was that it typically tied wines together. So if you had a famous Burgundy or a famous Piedmont wine, you had to buy some Southern Hemisphere wine or South African wine or something that was not really related in any other way other than the sense that it was imported by the same company. And you had to buy those things to get the allocation that you wanted. And in that type of game, I think buyers are becoming less and less enchanted with. And especially when you look at larger regions that have become more popular nowadays. Burgundy 10 years ago is not what Burgundy is today as far as the American perception of that category. You know, there are so many different wines that you can buy from Burgundy that would be considered, you know, on par or even greater than some of the most famous estates in that area that are larger estates. And so to me, that model was a little bit difficult. And the other problem with that model was that those wines would be closed out a lot. So you, I know, I know a buyer in Texas that I talked to, and he said, I just wait for this wine to be closed out. I never buy it on release. I just wait for it to be closed out, and then I just fill my cellar. And that was a model that for me was a little bit troubling. The second model that I think is one of the most important models that's happened in the American wine scene would be what I would term as a tastemaker model. And that, that's a model that comes out of the late 70s into the 80s. It's dominated by a handful of people who did a lot of work to build a portfolio. So almost all of them have their name on the label. It's so-and-so selection. It was... It, Put your name on the label was became kind of a demarcation of quality. And there were articles written in the 90s and in the 2000s all about, you know, if so-and-so's name is on the label, you know you're getting something good, which was a tremendous thing for these people that did it. And what that model did, in my opinion, was first, I think we owe the current wine scene to that model because these were the people that brought in wines that never would have been seen at that time. Ultimately, I think they would have come in through some way, right? But but they never were seen at that time. The other thing that was important about that model is that they were the first to really take importing seriously, to look at wine as a perishable product and not look at it as just a commodity. And so shipping on refrigerated containers, taking care of the wine in storage, all those kind of logistical issues became key for those types of people, which I thought it changed everything in the way that we do wine nowadays. Because if you don't do that today, no one will do business with you, you know? These people also kind of championed regions that were otherwise not being seen in the United States or smaller producers from famous regions that otherwise wouldn't have been seen. And so I think we really owe a lot to that generation of wine importer and what they did for the American wine scene. Um, my issues with that model, and I worked within that model for a long time, are a couple. One, one was that the inventory burden was really shifted from the importer. So like on the great estates model, they buy the wine and then they sell it to a distributor and then the distributor then sells it on. And there's never really a break in the inventory. With the tastemaker model, almost all of them, because they were small, just starting out, the way that they set up the models, whether they would be to do a direct import model or a, a pre-order, pre-offer model. So twice a year, once a year, they would come to a distributor, come to a buyer and say, here's our complete offering. You can buy whatever you want. And then those wines will ship within two months or three months or however long it happens to take. And in the early days, you know, you could go to certain retailers in, let's say, Boston or Minnesota or Texas, and you would see that like one importer's wines would be like dominant there. And so what the importer would do is they would like give exclusivity to like a major retailer, say, you have my name's on the label, you have exclusivity to this. And then in return, I want you to buy a container or have a container every year. And so the inventory kind of shifted, the burden of the cost of the inventory shifted from the importer side down to the distributor and then down to either the restaurant or the retailer. And that model has been under stress, I think, 
for quite a while. People are, especially after the 08 recession, even after September 11th, remember freedom fries and all of that crazy, no one was buying French wine and it was New Jersey. There was reports in the New York Times about people pouring champagne down the drain and everything like that. So when those types of stresses happen, I think people just don't want to invest the inventory. They have their regular stuff. Buyers are changing the whole role of the sommelier has become much more dynamic in the last eight to 10 years than it was before that. People were moving to different positions. A buyer may buy something, commit to something, and then they're on to another job. And then the wine comes in and what do you do with the wine? And that became, I think, a very difficult position to be in because those portfolios got very, very large. It wasn't uncommon to have not just 50 producers, but even 80, 100 different producers in those tastemaker model books. And no one distributor in any state could possibly work with all of those things. So then you have to find all these other different points of distribution around the country. And then the third model is what I would call kind of the direct import model. That's been growing more and more. It's You see it a little bit more on the coast than you do see it in the interior of the United States. However, Chicago is a market where it's happening quite a bit. And this is a model that kind of It kind of says, I don't need someone's name on the back label. I'm a savvy enough buyer. I've been doing this a long time. I can travel to the wine fairs if it's Provine or Vinitaly or Vinexpo, and I can taste the wines that I want, and I can import those wines directly and sell them in my market. Because every distributor has an import license. But, you know, by law, when you apply for your license, you have to first start with the import, basic import permit, and then you add a state distributor license on top of that. So every distributor has their import license, and they can do it as long as they have the you know wherewithal to put a container together, know a freight forwarder, a customs broker to get the wines from point A to point B. So you know anyone around the country could basically do that if they wanted to. That model, I think, has grown, especially since 2008 and the recession at that time. And that model, I think, has a lot of advantages. And you see it here in New York quite a bit. You see it also in Oregon and California. And that model basically says, I can bring the wines in on my own. I typically have to buy a little bit more inventory than I possibly would because I'm buying direct. And they're typically working with a broker, so people that are helping them, kind of curating wines for them, so they don't have to be boots on the ground over there always looking for something. They can call their broker and say, I'm, I need a Savoie wine, I need a Cote Roti wine, I need something, and they can provide them with samples and then decide if they want to buy it. And what's good for the distributor importer that does that is that they typically can make a little more margin on that wine. They can charge more money for it because the prevailing cost of a wine in a market is set by either the great estates model or the tastemaker model. And so if you're doing it direct, you can always undercut those two price points because you're not, you don't have the layers in between. And you can still offer something of great quality. It may not be a producer that everyone knows at first, but eventually, you know, a lot of these producers are coming in that are very famous in this model. And so that was also a model that I think is growing right now. It's not a model that I would say is under stress, but it's, it's a model that for me had some issues. If you wanted to be a national importer, which I think is the right way to import and distribute your wines in the United States, if you do the direct way, if I'm a producer in a country and I want to do the direct way, you're basically giving up inventory, stateside inventory in the United States. Okay, so there's no warehouse in the United States where if someone is running short on something, they can quickly get a truck to the warehouse and get inventory over there because otherwise it's going to take seven to eight weeks to get it from Europe over to the United States. The other problem is there's no one who's monitoring price parity around the country. So you can have wildly different prices. And as you know, search engines like winesearcher.com and other organizations where you can find different wines all over the United States are becoming more prevalent. That's becoming a real issue. In some markets, Chicago would be one of those markets. The retail buyers in that market are very sensitive to what New Jersey retailers are selling their wines for. So if they see something really discounted, because New Jersey has, you know, family plan price posting and stuff like that. So if they if they get a really good deal and they and they make a, a low price on the internet, then Chicago buyers may say, I'm, I'm not, I can't compete with that. I don't want to do it. I'll find something else. And the other problem for me about that model was that it basically ignored a lot of the markets that I think are very important. So it's very easy to find an importer in New York that can also cover New Jersey for you. It's very easy to find an importer in Chicago. It's very easy to find an importer in California, Washington, Oregon, fairly easy markets to do this in. When it comes to, let's say, the interior of the country and other markets, then it becomes much more difficult. And in my opinion, traveling all over the country, tasting with buyers, tasting with sommeliers, tasting with retail buyers, there is talent 
everywhere. And there are great restaurants everywhere in the country. They're not just on the coast. And the best retailers are not just on the coast. They're all over the place. And to kind of limit your wine to only the coast is to be a little bit myopic about how you might be able to build your brand. And it's also true that buyers in the interior or in other parts of the country come to the coast at some point. So you might turn someone on to grow a champagne in Florida and then they come to New York, for example. So it's, it's like, a, for me, it's important to kind of realize that you want to sell in the entire United States, not just what we would call the A markets and ignore all the flyover markets. And it seems like there's a lot of consolidation that's pushing national networks. So that what happens in one state can affect what happens in another state. I totally agree with that. We've seen a lot of consolidation happening in a more regional way for the last four to five years. And then this last year, we've seen a lot of kind of what I would call more national consolidation, big companies coming together. And that's that's going to be very interesting, I think, for the wine business. There's, um, I think it's cyclical. I, I, I don't, it doesn't really scare me. What, what scares me about it a little bit is when I, I have a really good relationship with a small distributor and then they sell out to someone who's a little bit bigger where I know that that relationship is going to be fraught with problems or at least not maybe not fraught with problems, but it, there could be more difficulties. I mean, even simple clerical things like setting up an item, getting an item priced can, with a larger company can sometimes take five weeks. With a smaller company, you know, you talk to the right person, it's done that day. But what I've seen in my experience in national sales, what I've seen over the years is when you do have these consolidations, typically someone will break off and start another smaller company. The wineries that are then put into this large mix of wines start to see their sales drop. They start to see lack of focus. They start to see that it's not really working in this way. And then they split off and then go and go into another distributor in that market. Um, the only issue where it's a real problem is in the franchise states where you just can't move from one place to another. That's where it becomes very difficult. But have you seen leveraging of one market in favor of another market? Like, have you seen someone say, look, I mean, we're in all of these states. If you'd like to be with us in all of these states, you'd need to be with us in this specific market as well. That has come to me a little bit. Like I was trying to get into one market, North Dakota and South Dakota are two markets that are fairly small. There's not a real need for Shotzi to be in those two states, but I wanted to explore it. And I had a good lead with one company and I thought, well, I can work with this larger company in these two states because you know, there's really not much else there, you know? And they kind of said, well, if you want us here, we want you in these five other states. And, and for me, that was very difficult because in the other states that they mentioned were larger states like, you know, Illinois and Chicago and, and Las Vegas, uh, Nevada. And I couldn't do that. I couldn't move away in those markets. So that means I can't really work in those two states at the moment until I find the right person. So, but there is always the right person out there. You just need to wait and be patient. And the network, I think, of people that know who to work with is fairly small. But I think a lot of us talk a lot, you know, hey, who, who do you have in this market? How are they doing for you? And it's common that, you know, a lot of the national people will get on the phone and say, hey, how's that working for you? I, I saw you just went with them. How does how's it working out? Are they paying you on time? You know, are they paying attention to what you're doing? So eventually it'll happen. It just takes patience and making the right decision. It's always I think the wrong choice to jump into a market just because you get a good PO and you're like, yeah, that's, that's money for me. Let me sell this. Let me get into that market and get going. I think it's always smarter to kind of wait a little bit, really investigate who that person is, make sure that it, it's good. One of the things that I, I've done with Shotzi that I think is helping a little bit is to, to really have that open line of communication, to be really very honest and very direct about what my expectations are, what their expectations are, and to know everything as much as you can going in so that you're not surprised so that one, the distributor isn't surprised about where my company is going and I'm not surprised about where their company is going. So thinking long-term as opposed to short-term, basically. Exactly. So how did you frame Shotzi against the background of what we've been talking about? Here you saw these three models. They all seem to have advantages, but also disadvantages. You see a changing landscape nationally in terms of consolidation at different levels. What did you decide to do when you built your own business? I hired two people right away. I got on a plane, went to Germany, started you know, looking up contacts that I had had and people that I knew and wines that I had tasted that weren't in the US market before and put together a small portfolio. So within three months, we had wine here in the United States of other producers and two employees. So to answer your, your original question, the how is Shotzi different? One, we have stateside inventory. I really believe that you must invest in stateside inventory. 
So as a buyer in a, in a market in New York, this is normal business, right? You call your salesperson, ship this for Friday, I'm done. On the national side, the distributor is going to send you a purchase order. My trucker's coming next week. I need a pallet of this and 20 cases of that and a layer of that. And then you want to have that ready for them. So you can run into cases where you can deplete, you know, 400 cases in two weeks if you're not prepared for it. So you have to have enough inventory to kind of manage all those different markets and what they might need. So I believe in that. So everything that we list, everything that we write about on the website or is in the price list, everything is in stock. So that's a very different model than kind of saying, I'm going to list, you know, 400 different wines. And maybe we have a core list where we have one wine or two wines from a handful of producers that we stock all the time and everything else has to be a pre-order. For us, everything is always available to anyone at any time. So that was one major change. The other change was I didn't want to really get away from the broker idea because I thought, you know, there isn't really a need to have that layer in the system. And I'm still bearing that out to see how that's going to work. You know, we were one little over a year in business, so we're still trying to see how financially all this works out. But I believe that customers, both locally and in California, we work with brokers, so we're kind of local in California as well. And then also on the national side, they saw prices go down when Shotzi took over wines, and so they responded to that right away. And that allows them to either make a little bit more, to lower it to their customers, to meet price points, or to kind of get the glass pour that they need. So we work on much thinner margins, more like a broker's margin nationally, uh, but we still have parity. So we make a little bit more money in the New York market to kind of make it equal everywhere. So the wholesale price here is basically the same wholesale price you're going to pay in Ohio. Because you don't want that situation where someone's looking on wine search and there's a big divergence. Exactly. And they might order for shipping from out of state, basically. Exactly. Correct. And then the other idea that we had was to keep the portfolio very small. You know, we didn't want to have redundancy. That was something that I I wanted to do a really good job for a few producers instead of kind of a mediocre job for many. And the idea was to build the business by growing points of distribution and not by adding some new hot producer and then kind of saying, this is how we're going to grow the business. So that was the other thing that was very key to me. So like in Germany, we have five producers at the moment and none of them are in the same region. And so there's no issue with internal competition. There's no phone calls where someone's saying, hey, how come this guy is selling more than me? I'm not selling enough with you, that kind of thing. Exactly. And the suppliers love it because they see a, like a genuine commitment on, on my part to invest in them and buy their inventory, not just list it and hope that someone buys it when I make an offer. When you were describing those distributor models or importer models, I felt like technology wasn't a big part of that analysis, but it does seem like a lot has changed. How is that affecting the business? There's lots of different ways, I think, to go with that question. I'll start first with communication would be one. Facebook was something that I don't, haven't really never done a whole lot of. I, I mostly I like pictures, so I do maybe a little Instagram and links to my Facebook account. But I, I have like two producers that their preferred way of communicating with me is Facebook Messenger. You know, I can send an email. I don't get a, get a response, but if it's a Facebook Messenger thing, that technology is their way of communicating. And so I had to sign up for Messenger because I had to, you know. So that's one way in which it's changed. I think the way we see bottles and we see what's trendy or what's happening or, or what people are drinking all around the world, we're a much more mobile buying community right now. If you go over to the champagne tastings in April, or if you go to any of the big fairs, you are guaranteed to see Americans over there from everywhere, tasting wine, talking about wine, being exposed to wine that they would never otherwise be exposed to. So I think the ease of travel and also social media has allowed more access. People know more about what's going on and, and seeing it. It's sometimes frustrating and sometimes interesting, I think, for a lot of us in the wine business to kind of say, okay, why did that wine become so famous so quickly? Why is it now a cult wine when people couldn't give it away, you know, five to seven years ago? And now one tastemaker will kind of get on it and then it, it becomes a thing. That's an interesting aspect of the technology side of what social media has done. Does it seem like those trends are moving a lot faster than they were before? I mean, I feel like when you were here previously and we talked about your retail career, I felt like over years you were like, all right, gang, we're going to do grower champagne and you convince some people to buy it, but it took some time. Correct. Whereas I feel like now with what you're mentioning about influencers and tastemakers and social media, I feel like things can happen quite fast sometimes. I agree. I think things happen much more quickly now than they ever did before. 
It has an interesting connection with a general feeling that I have that there's a lot of wine in the world. There's a ton of wine in the world. And where does it all go? You know, and how do we sell what we believe in against all the other stuff that we have to compete with? And I think one of the reasons why I gravitate towards European wine and why I've gravitated towards esoteric categories is because it's work to sell those things. You know, when we added the Beaujolais portfolio to Shotzi in 2015, at the end of 2015, I was beside myself in how quickly we could get that sold. And I was like, oh my God, I've been pushing this rock up this hill for so many years of my wine career, trying to get people to drink Riesling and Grunewaldliner and Grower Champagne. Grower Champagne is now, you can't stop that. It is the fastest growing category. There's a lot of Grower Champagne now in the market that I think probably shouldn't be, but you know, it is, it is a category that you cannot stop. But with German wine, with Austrian wine, it is still, I think, an uphill push. So things are happening a lot more quickly, but you're also competing against all this other world of wine that you have to find a way to kind of differentiate yourself from what somebody else is doing. So for us, the model, you know, the lower margins is part of that, not having redundancy. I wanted to have a portfolio that I could go to any distributor. If there's distributors in Nebraska, if the distributors in Chicago, no matter where that distributor is, I would have a small enough book, but a well-chosen enough book that they could say, I can work with everybody you have. I didn't want to be in a situation of, okay, now let's have the conversation. Which producers are you going to work with? Which ones do we just not talk about? That type of thing. So I wanted it to be very open, very direct and simplified. I wanted to simplify everything. Since I worked with Terry for so long, I mean, I would say that Terry has built an encyclopedic book, right? It is a reference point for German wine. It maybe be the reference point for German wine in the United States. And so that's a type of book that I don't want to replicate. One, because I don't think I could. I don't have the time and the kind of the energy and the resources to kind of scour all of Germany and put together something together like what he did. I also, I think some of these portfolios, tastemaker portfolios are identified with a certain style or a certain type of philosophy. If it's a natural wine philosophy, if it's a I prefer more oak and, and like a red wine or something. They all have a certain type of following. So that can be very good for the market, right? There are some people, it brings people to them, right? If they identify with whatever that taste might be, it, there's a guaranteed buyer for you. If you disagree with that type of taste, whatever that happens to be, or that philosophy, then you alienate that group. And I didn't really want to get into that. I didn't want to have a, okay, Shotzi is about this X, I wanted it to be a little bit more egalitarian, a little bit more easygoing, maybe. You know, I didn't want to be encyclopedic. I wanted to be about producers that I get along with, that I like, that the wines I thought spoke to me. And that was kind of the organizing principle. I mean, everything is still kind of Northern European and where it comes from. And it'll probably always stay that way. I don't see myself really going into very hot climates. It's just not my preference. And so I don't, I don't really see it going that way. But I'm I'm pretty open to, like, Dreisigacher's style is completely different than Leitz or Spindler. His style is, you know, 48 hours of skin maceration. The Rieslings are rich and thick and powerful and not powerful by alcohol, but powerful by just body. And in Spindler and Leitz, they're much more lithe, much more delicate, much more maybe precise in their tone and stuff like that. So I don't want to be identified with one particular style or, or something. I want to I want to be able to show what different people can do with what they have. If you're going to just pick one Mosul producer, that to me feels like, boy, how do you even do that? You know what I <laughs> well, mean? Well, I'm going to break Mosul into more than one area. I mean, Mosul is big enough that I'll probably look at middle Mosul as one area, the terraces as one, and then you also have Zara and Ruver that you could technically, I think, divide into two. So, so you're a cheater. I mean, maybe saying. maybe you could look at it that way, <laughs> but I'm just, I'm just, I want to have, I, I think you can't really have a, a, a complete, German portfolio without somebody in the middle Mosul. It is too important of an area and the vineyards are too well known not to have somebody there. The reason why we don't have somebody there at the moment is because that needs to be the right person. It needs to be somebody who has either Valeners on or, or a Grok type vineyard or Doctor Vineyard or, you know, it needs to be someplace that people recognize. So that may take us a year, that may take us five years. I don't know. I'm patient enough to wait for that. I'm not going to just jump on on what's available. We were offered several middle Mosul wines from younger producers, and some of them were interesting, some of them were not so interesting. And it's always kind of fun to be the guy that finds the producer that no one's ever heard of, but 
that's also has its own problems too, right? You know, if you can't taste back several vintages and see, okay, how do they do in that really difficult vintage, you know, how are you really going to judge them and, and kind of get a sense of what they can do? So we'll kind of evolve it slowly as it comes to be, but we want to kind of make a portfolio that makes sense not only to us, but how we think we can sell it, you know, and how we also look at the personalities of the people within the portfolio. That's another thing, you know, you don't want to have, when you only have five German producers, you want to make sure that they know each other, that they get along, that there's not, not problems. I'm not going to have that, you know, if I really want to work with someone and they happen to not be friends with somebody else, I'm not going to have that be a deterring factor. But I, I do want as much kind of harmony as I possibly can, because that does change the way things are sold. And it changes the way that producer may interact with you, may interact with your customers, and you want that to be always good. So that brings up an interesting aspect of that, which is I think a lot of times when books grow, it's because a producer knows another producer and they're friends, and he suggests it to their importer. It's interesting that you bring that up because it's, that's actually happened to us. So to go back to how do you pick someone from one area, when we went to Beaujolais, I took Haley and Dan, my colleagues, Dan Weber from, used to work at Uva and Flatiron Wines and now started with me right at the beginning. And then Haley Johnson, who worked at RN74 in California, and then she went to work at Slanted Door for a long time. And then she actually moved to Germany and, and worked the viticulture with lights for a year. So she did pruning and, and all the viticulture work for one year over there. So we all three of us went over to Beaujolais and we spent four and a half, five days there. We tasted at several fairs, the Bay 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 was going on. We went around that time. And then we made appointments at, you know, the people that where you really need to kind of have a benchmark view of somebody. So if it's Lapalu or whoever it happens to be, you go taste at the places that are the known great places, not because you're looking to work with them, but just because you also want to have a sense of, you know, what exactly is going on here. So at the end of that week, you know, we narrowed it down to maybe five producers who we were interested in. And who also had some interest in us. And then we narrowed it down to three. And then I went back over a couple months later and tasted through all of them again, and then narrowed it down to the two that we wanted to work with. And so in some ways, it's kind of a whittling down and trying to find how it works. One producer is is very fresh cement, you know, fermentation style, very kind of freshy style. And then the, the other one's much more serious, fermented in oak barrels, neutral, not new, but all neutral oak barrels. So they also had stylistic differences that we wanted. But on the on the friend side, um, Fabrice Puyon, who is somebody that actually I didn't find, obviously. I, it was someone that Terry actually was talking to for a long time. And I owe Terry for all of that because he he was wanting to work with Fabrice. And then because of an internal conflict within his own portfolio, it wasn't a possibility. And so I wrote to him and I just said, do you mind if I approach Puyon? And he said, no, not at all. And so I approached them and and that became a really good connection for me. And when that happened, then Fabrice went to school with somebody that he knew. He's like, you should talk to this guy. So we went to talk to somebody up in Verzenay, and we thought that might go somewhere, but that didn't go anywhere. And he knew somebody from Alsace, so we went to taste there. And then the one that did work out was uh, a producer in Santenay, which is uh, Francois Lacan from uh, René Lacan Collin. And uh, so we'll start with his Burgundy this year in 2016. Watching Terry, what else did you pick up over all those years? What is important when you approach a grower, when you taste wine, when you do the things that are a fundamental part of that business? Terry spends a lot of time with his producers when he's over there. So when he when he goes to Europe in March, he's there for three weeks and he is doing two appointments a day, three appointments a day, and he takes the time to you know, really work with the wines. He knows that this is his time to write the catalog, not physically write it at that visit, but to take the notes that he will then assemble the catalog from at a later time. And so he's very diligent about tasting through everything, thinking about it, you know, putting together an offer that makes sense for him. And I think that is invaluable work that you do. When I was at Skrennick, I used to do that the first several years I would do that, but then I couldn't stay for three weeks out of the year. The domestic business got so busy, it was not possible for me to be away. And I just couldn't be away from my family either. So at the last years when I was there, I would go over and meet with him for a couple of days, but then I would go taste on my own or I'd have samples sent to wherever I was and taste there because I didn't have to do the work that he had to do, right? And now that I have to do it on my own, it's it's a different situation, right? I need to spend a lot more time than than I ever would as an employee of somebody else. But being now the person responsible for putting the portfolio together, I looked at Terry and am very grateful for what I learned with him because it was an invaluable experience with 14 years with working with him. So really having not just a tasting session, but a relationship with these suppliers. Exactly. 
Yeah. Jerry is always very good at, at the personal relationship on the producer level. He knows about if they're going through personal issues. He knows if they're sick. He just knows. He's, he's, he's very intuitive and he's, he also can, he, he's a good listener when it comes to those types of things. So he's very attuned to that, which I think makes him successful with those producers. And it does seem like a world where having the supplier is beginning to look maybe more difficult than it would have been in Schoonmacher's era. Because there's just so many importers and distributors and people who are both scouring Europe looking for people, right? Or is that not? I think it's much more difficult now for lots of reasons. One, I mean, if you go back even into the 70s, you know, before you had agents like Vizon and Calder and, and other agents like that, you know, you could roll up on a what's now a famous Burgundy estate and just knock on the door. And if they were willing to sell you a barrel of wine, you could buy a barrel of wine and bottle it and, and ship it over. And now that's, that's really not the case. You know, the agents that are over in France that have a full-time job representing hundreds of producers, they may not sell them all everywhere, but they're going to sell a little bit in certain places. You know, they'll sign with that broker and then that broker will say, well, I represent the United States for you and I'll find somebody for you there. So in Germany, it's a little bit easier in the sense of, it is still an esoteric country to sell. And, you know, asking for national exclusivity is has never really come up as an issue. In France, it is much more of an issue. You know, if, if it's someone who's never worked in the United States market before, it doesn't really come up. And then if it's somebody who is working in the market but wants to change their importation in the United States and how the wines are distributed, then sometimes it can be a little bit interesting. So I, I've been negotiating with one French producer for now over, I think, nine months. And it's all coming down to this exclusivity issue. He's willing to kind of give us New York, New Jersey, basically every market but two. And and I'm trying to think, okay, do I stay true to my conviction? Do I stay true to my belief that I don't want to just sell these cases in New York, New Jersey, California, but I also want to sell them in Ohio? I'm from Ohio. I, I think there's great buyers in Ohio. There's great tasters in Ohio. There's great consumers in Ohio. Why shouldn't the wine be in Ohio too? It shouldn't just be kind of in the major metropolitan areas. So I don't know. It's going to be, it's a test for me at the moment. You know, we keep, I keep trying to convince him of my point of view. He keeps trying to convince me of his point of view and I don't know where it's going to end up, but you know, we'll see. How many really untapped amazing producers are still out there in Europe? I think there will always be great producers coming up because you have people that are retiring and another generation coming up, or you have people that are retiring and do not have any heirs and therefore vineyards are sold and somebody new comes in and takes it over. With Dreisigacher is a pretty good example. He was basically unknown. His family was making Mosel-style wines in Rheinhessen, so a lot of Cabinet Spätlese Auslese, a lot of Mother Turgau and Kerner and other stuff that you don't really want to drink. And when he kind of took over, his older brother first took over, and then his older brother had him come into the winery, and Jochen basically said, look, I want to do something different. I'm going to go first organic. That's Farming is the most important thing, so we're going to move everything over to organic. Second, it's going to be dry. And then he started making a completely different style of wine and they lost 80% of their local customers because the local people in the town in Beshtime, they're like, I don't, I don't recognize this wine anymore. It's not what I used to buy. So there's somebody who kind of came from a winery that really made a name for himself and became extremely famous in Germany because of those wines. But I think you see that everywhere. I think in every region you have new people that are coming up, people that are experimenting, people that are doing something a little bit different. Are all the best people taken we can never know. I think you can only keep tasting and keep your eyes open and keep your mind open to, to different expressions. And when it comes to the American market, I mean, I think you're somebody that really sees the entirety of the States. One, because you enjoy doing that. You enjoy not just working the coast. You enjoy going and getting to know the buyers in Ohio and other states, and you see the value of that. At the same time, I feel like there's been a fair amount of change, even in the last couple of years since you were here last, so what does the American market look like today? There's no very easy answer to that question because it is really specific by state. And, and the laws that govern that state and how wine can be sold in that state also play a major role in the types of wines that you see in that market. And also, I, I would go even so far to say that certain laws in certain states prohibit the type of innovation of a wine list, of a buyer for a wine list in a restaurant or in a retail set to really make an interesting contribution to the wine buying public in that market. So when you have extremely prohibitive laws about dry counties and wet counties where you have franchise issues where wines get stuck and then not sold, and then you have distributors who will go in and they'll, they'll buy the wine, they won't give up a franchise agreement because they want to 
basically lock that brand up so that you can't go to somebody else and compete against maybe something else that they have. That I think the laws are really, for me, the biggest issue that I hope changes at some point. I, I really want franchise laws to fall apart because it really prohibits innovation, I think, in, around the United States. You know, what's happening in Georgia versus North Carolina? You know, North Carolina went through some really interesting times with a lot of consolidation, a lot of bigger box retailers coming in. A lot of the independents went out of business. When you start seeing wine at Costco selling a lot of wine, I mean, Costco sells a ton of wine and they sell a lot of good wine. It's not just kind of what you would typically say is grocery store wine. They're also doing, you know, interesting private labels with really well-known well-respected winemakers. So how is that affecting what people are doing on the retail side? And do they need to then branch out and make it into like a wine bar or something else? How do they find their business? And so it is very different wherever you go. If you look at Grower Champagne, Grower Champagne is hot in Chicago. Like I can't even describe. It is one of the hottest markets for Grower Champagne. I think Portland, Oregon is also one of those markets. New York and San Francisco are also very good for grower champagne, but not to the saturation level that you see in Chicago and that you see in, in Portland, Oregon. And then in a market like Louisiana, still, especially New Orleans, still a very French dominated market. So there's grower champagne sold down there, but it's big burgundy market. It's a huge burgundy market. So, you know, everywhere you go, you have different cultures, different wine traditions in that market. Um, Italian wine in the Pacific Northwest is huge. And I mean, I don't understand why, but it is predatory to Barbaresco, where their biggest market is Oregon in the entire United States. So, I mean, it's a crazy kind of where those things come from and, and how they develop and how they evolve over time. But every state is different. Every city within that state is different. And, you know, our job as national people is to kind of go find the buyers that we can help educate, help teach them about these wines and help get them interested in the wines and help grow that segment of the business. So does that mean being on the road quite a bit? It does. I, I was I was hoping to do less than what I did in my previous job, and I'm doing about the same at the moment. On the other side, the pricing model is built more like a broker, so we don't have the extra margin in selling to Ohio or to Washington State to kind of fund a plane ticket out there, hotels, rental cars, dinners tastings, all this other type of stuff. So we have to kind of figure out how it all kind of works within the budget, which is my job now to kind of say, okay, obviously this market needs help. And how do we give that market help? And how do we pay for it? So I'm committed to the pricing model. I just have to still kind of figure out how it all, how it all shakes out. And why is the pricing model important? What is important when you set prices? What has to happen? Well, I think all of this depends on the wine. Okay. So certain wines need to sell at a certain price point or they they just don't sell. So like with lights, as an example, like Dragonstone and Einzfei Dry, I needed those wines to be in that 15 to $17 range. And so those I lowered the price on those a lot just to get them back into where they were because they were in the mid-20s, low to mid-20 range. And that was just priced out of the market. And that wine needs to be a glass pour to sell the volume that is produced and that we can sell. It's a bread and butter wine for lights and for us. And we need that cash you know, management. You know, If the money's not coming in on those types of items then you can have all the high-end stuff you want and it's just sitting there and you, you know, or it sells very slowly, then you can't keep the business going. So I think it really depends on the type of wine and where you want it to fall into that pricing matrix. And then actually what ends up happening is that you have inertia from the portfolio that kind of brings things along. And if you can get certain wines into the market and people kind of trust what you're doing and they trust in the model, then the distributor is going to invest in you a little bit. They're going to believe in what you say. I mean, I, I had one situation this year where I'd never had this in my previous job where we brought in the Beaujolais and this distributor said, which ones do you want us to buy? You know, no, didn't even have to taste the wines. I never have experienced that before in my life. Buying a whole bunch of stock on stuff that were untasted, unproven, never heard of, no ratings. And when you can have that kind of really direct and very kind of honest relationship with that distributor, then those things I think can happen. And then you go into the market and you do, you do your little blitz, you try to get through and you do the education that you can. I'm trying to do more educational things and less kind of the big tasting thing. I'm, I'm really tired of the big portfolio tasting idea. It's also uh, very expensive, right? It's very expensive and I'm not sure it sells a whole lot of wine. It seems to me to be more of a social occasion. You know, always when the January tastings come up in this market in New York, you know, 
you see all the Psalms coming and all the buyers coming. Hey, how was your holidays? What'd you do? And because no one has any time in November and December. So like, it's the first chance for people to kind of get out and see each other. And it's less about tasting the wine. And especially when you do something where you have 500 different wines for portfolio tasting, you just can't, who can possibly do all that, you know? So I'm trying to find other ways to make a market visit really worthwhile. One jealousy I have is like Bobby Stuckey and Lachlan, for example, you know, when they with Scarpetta and with their, with the restaurant with Frosca, you know, they can go to a market and like take over someone's kitchen and like cook food and pour the wines and kind of explain how the food and the wine work together. And like, I mean, that's brilliant. If you had that type of thing all the time, that's like a a really great idea. But then the other question is how often can you do that? Or how many times can you do that in a market before you need to do something a little bit different? So you, I think you always have to be thinking of innovative ways, new ways to get people excited about the wines that you're representing. What is the evolution now? What's been happening in the last few years with Grower Champagne? How has it changed? What's very interesting to me about Grower Champagne right now is when you go to the region, what you taste now is very different from what you were given to taste back 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, a lot of these estates were still being run by the parent generation. So like the first generation that was really doing a lot of grower champagne. And they were successful enough, made enough money that the next generation that's now taking over, people that are in their 30s and 40s now that are running these estates, and even younger, of course, you know, they have the financial stability to not really worry about, are we going to make it as a grower champagne producer? Are we going to have to go back to selling everything in bulk? Or what are we going to do? And so you see that generation now really investing in things that the previous generation could not invest in. And the biggest thing is really farming. So like a whole industry has come up in Champagne of horse plowing. Like you would never see this 10 years ago. I mean, some people did it, but really it was extremely rare. And now there's a guy in the area and all he does is he has, you know, two or three horses and he schedules everybody out. So whoever calls them, he's like, okay, I'm coming out. I'm plowing, I'm plowing, I'm plowing. That's his job now. That job didn't really exist 10 years ago. And then what you taste is totally different too. When you taste now, everyone wants to taste the Van Clare with you. So the, the first alcoholic fermentation wine. And 10 years ago, you would have to kind of beg, please let me, can I try, if you want to try something, please let me try something. I remember when I first visited at Aubry, I was like, okay, what is Petit Medlier? What does that taste like? I've never had that grape. I don't know what it is. Can I please try the Van Clare? And they were a little bit like, mm, I don't know if you really want to, but yeah, we'll go get it for you. You know, and it's, you know, it's a high acid grape and, And so that's the thing that I think was very interesting back then is that people didn't really want to show you the primary alcoholic wines because one, they were typically very shrill. You know, they were still harvesting a little bit lower in Beaumet, a little bit lower potential alcohol. I think global warming has certainly had an influence on this also. But the father of all this is for sure Solos. You know, Solos is the guy that basically said, okay, alcoholic fermentation is key. How you do that is key to the way that wine is going to taste at the end. And a lot of people that studied under him, including people like Alexander Chartonia and and others, they, they've taken that philosophy and really run with it, you know? So to me, that's what's really exciting about the Grower Champagne movement now is that you have, there's there's still people that are in the old school, you know, they're still kind of doing 10 gram sugar or nine, six for every cuvee and not really interested in what is going on. And they're writing the coattails of the Grower Champagne movement. But I think the really conscientious people, they're looking for alcoholic fermentation, a primary fermentation that is really fascinating that you would want to drink and can drink even without it going through the sparkling fermentation in the bottle. Is it almost too hot of a category now? Like where you're a grower, you're coming in. Like yeah, I think it is a little bit at the moment. I think there will be a little bit of weeding out. I've had that issue a little bit with the farm because we want to do bourbon and like there's small batch bourbon everywhere now. And I'm like, okay, what's going to happen? How are we going to compete in that market? Because there's farm distilleries popping up all over the Hudson Valley, all over the country. You know, how do we bring something to market that is going to be something that people are going to want to buy and buy a second time, not just the first time. And so I think there's going to be a natural weeding out attrition of some of these, of some of these grower champagnes in the market. And I think that quality always has to win. I hope, I believe in that. I hope I'm not too romantic in that belief, but I, you have to believe that if you make a great product and it's sold at the correct price for that product, that it's going to find a market and people are going to love it. So there's been a lot of evolution in the grower champagne sector, but what about some of the other countries you deal with, like Austria and Germany? I mean, you have a lot of long-term experience tasting in those countries. What's changed recently? 
Um, in Germany, the trend towards dry wine is still going forward. And I think it's not even fair to call it a trend anymore. I think it is more of uh, the reality of the current German winemaker. And a lot of things have made that very different. So if you look at how dry Riesling was made 15 years ago, it was made very much like a sweet wine. So you, the grapes would come in, they'd be basically pressed immediately fermented and, until totally dry. And then what you ended up with was a pretty shrill type of wine. And and that's what people complained about. Exactly. For good reason, you know. And what's happening now is they, they really ferment dry wines very differently than they ferment the sweeter wines. So for a dry wine, it's very common to have some maceration period of time just to allow the potassium layer between the skin and the pulp to bind with tartaric acidity, fall out in the must before you even start the fermentation. Um, and that can lower the acidity by almost two grams per liter before you even get started. You lose another gram, gram and a half in the fermentation process. And so you can get a, a, a rounder wine, a, a smoother wine by just changing the way you do the fermentation. I'm a lover of dry Riesling and have always been a lover of dry Riesling. And I think my palate lends itself more towards that. That's what I prefer to drink at home. And so the Shotzi portfolio is more oriented that way with lights. You know, about half what we sell is dry, half what we sell is is fruity. With dry Seagocker, it's all dry. With Spindler, it's all dry. Hager is Pinot variety, so it doesn't really count. And then with Von Hovel and the Czar, he's, he's got some dry wines, but he's really our only true fruity person, you know. But even even he on the Spätlese level is much more restrained than what you would see even several years ago. So... I would say even the fruity wines that are being made now are a lot drier than they used to be even five, 10 years ago. There was a time when after 2001, the great 2001 vintage and people were really pushing the press. It was the first time Parker had done press on German wine in years, right? So that came out, really drove the sales. And then, you know, as all these kind of press tastings went on and on, people would push that sweetness level higher and higher and higher because the one that seems the richest, the the most opulent and the the most showy would get the higher scores. And I think producers are now really coming back on that. Some people never went that way. You know, Johannes Selbach is a good example of that. He never followed that trend. His He likes kind of crunchy wines that he wants to drink. And he has an illustration that I think I'll never forget. He says he likes bananas that have a little bit of greenness to them. He likes that flavor of the banana more than he likes the perfectly yellow banana. And I totally agree with that. I like to have crunch. I like to have focus. But given the choice on a normal day, regardless of what the food might be, I would prefer to drink a dry wine. On the other side, the reason why we kind of decided to go into Beaujolais was because the two things that, at least for me, that I can drink pretty quickly right out of the bottle is Riesling Cabernet and a bottle of Beaujolais, you know. They go down pretty easily. Yeah, you and a lot of other people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right now, I mean, as you alluded to, Beaujolais mm -hmm. like pretty popular right now. I think that's a category that's about to really explode. And it's not totally picked over. And there's a lot of opportunity in Beaujolais. And the kind of the famous brands have really reached into a different price echelon where they are no longer accessible to people that don't know about Beaujolais. And so we went into Beaujolais with a lot of expectation and a lot of hope. And so far it's paying off. And what about Austria? Austria, I'm really restrained in at the moment. I have only three producers at the moment. One is Stoggard, who here's another guy that came out of nowhere. Okay. So the family has making wines in the area for over 300 years, but really a lot of it was sold to a co-op and not really, you know, stuff was drunk at home or sold to the local village in Stein, but not really exported, never exported, never really seen. And then the son comes along and they decide to really kind of, okay, we're about quality. We're going to make this into something. And they were blessed with a lot of things that previous generations had done for them. They had a lot of monastic vineyards that they rented in previous generations that they could still have. That's one really interesting thing for me about the difference between Germany and Austria, because Napoleon, you know, comes through Germany is anti-church, takes all the monasteries, gives them back to the, the people that are working the land or sells them to banks or whatever just to raise money. In Austria, Napoleon never got that far. In the Catholic Church and the and the emperor of Austria, could they worked out basically a deal. And if the monastery is taking care of people, if they're caring for the sick, if they're caring for the elderly, we're not going to take away those vineyards. But that's how Goebbelsberg basically has the great vineyards there in the Comtel, you know. And so the same is true with Stoggart. He has Seitz, Steiner Hund, he has the Grillenparts, he has Schreck, and he's able to get those vineyards basically because of old contracts with the monastery. And he's doing all dry wine. He's really good friends with people in the Mosul terraces, with the Lubenchosov family, the Barts. And so 
you know, he loves Mosul wines. His Austrian wine has maybe like four or five grams of residual sugar. So not the really, really bone dry that you have seen out of Austria, but he's completely anti-Botrytis. So, I mean, that's more on the German side. You know, the Germans, when they make a, a dry Riesling, Botrytis for them is not interesting. In Austria, especially in the Wachau, you do see Botrytis, concentrated Botrytis in, in the dry wines. So I think that style of winemaking is coming into a little bit more vogue right now. The cleaner style. The cleaner style in Austria. And then my other two producers in Austria would be uh, Marcus Altenberger and, and Jos. He does Blaufrankisch. And he's somebody who was recommended to me by Georg Preler. So, you know, Preler said, hey, this guy is great. He's doing really interesting stuff. You should look at him. And the other one is Aldo Somme. So Somme and Crocker is a new wine for us that we're going to be working with. And what really fascinated me about that wine is that he has uh, a limestone vineyard in St. Georg, which is where one of the parent grapes of Gruner Veltliner was found. And it makes a very different expression of Gruner Veltliner. So I'm very excited to have that expression as well, because it's not typical Wachau Comtel creme style, you know. But where is the style of Austrian wine going? I think, you know, there's a lot of Austrian wine in the United States market. Stoggard was honestly, a little bit of a fluke. You know, I was kind of in the right place at the right time. I wrote to him before he got some really good press in Parker. And I, and then once that press came out, then everyone wrote to him. And I was, I was happy to have been one of the first to kind of do that. This goes back, honestly, to a little bit of social media. I, he's good at social media. I saw the wines. I saw winemakers whom I really respect, like commenting, this is really good wine. This is really good wine. Like, who is this guy? I've never heard this guy. I've been going to Austria every year since 99. How do I not know this guy? And that's how it started. So it started with a, a Facebook instant message. Hey, Urban, you don't know who I am, but I would like to talk to you. And that's, but now I use Facebook. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> now I use Facebook. And can we talk? So that's how that started. When you build a small portfolio, what has to be in a portfolio? Um, I don't think I can answer that question. Uh, and the reason why is because I don't, I honestly don't know at the moment. I know that if I have a German portfolio, I must have a middle Mosul producer. I know that. I know that if I have an Austrian portfolio, at some point I have Kremstall, I have uh, Noisy Lucy Hugelan, and I have Weinviertel. So, you know, at some point, does it make sense to have a Wachau producer? Probably for the kind of the reputation of the portfolio. On the other side, I know that selling those wines is becoming harder and harder. And I know that not from my personal experience in my previous job, but from other competitors, I've seen wines that just get closed out because they just can't get sold. And so do I really want to get into that again? So I don't really know. Beaujolais, I'm happy with. Burgundy, I'm really happy with. I think I need to have someone in Chablis, but I think that's going to take years. And my one area that I really want to get into is, is into Switzerland, because I think there's a lot of opportunity in Switzerland and the wines that are here are tremendous quality, also very expensive. And they're just, they're, there has to be more. And maybe I'm wrong. It was going to be a push that I was going to make in 2015. That was where I was going to spend a lot of time and try to find something. And then when the, when the Swiss decoupled their franc from the euro, I was like, all right, I'm, I'm not doing that. It's going to be way too expensive because the currency issue is going to be the problem. So I'm going to wait and see and kind of see where I go there. I think everything's going to still kind of say kind of Northern European-ish and see where it goes from there. And you've really never expressed any interest in the domestic production. I mean, for a guy no. who travels all over the United States, you've never said, you know, some of these wines. No, I believe, I believe in the national model. I, I don't think all the iterations of it right now are successful. I think a lot of them are under stress, but I believe in that model. I think it's a good way to sell wine. So if I were to work with a domestic person, it'd be against the model. That being said, Finger Lakes would be an option because the Finger Lakes have, I could sell it here in New York. I could sell it all over the country. And I think the quality of the wines in the Finger Lakes right now are really on the upswing. And I think there's a lot to look forward to up there. So I actually am looking a little bit in the Finger Lakes. Do you ever see your portfolio getting big enough that it's a standalone distributor? I do see it getting large enough for that one because the volume that we do with lights is big enough to do it now. I think we could be a standalone company. The question is, when I was faced with that choice way back when, when I knew that I had to do something and I, have, I should be thankful that I was given that choice, right? Because I was able to start something bigger than what I originally planned. But, you know, I, I was thinking to myself, I can't roll up on Julia Pope with a bag of lights every week. You know, that's, she's going to be like, you know, you, you're welcome to stay for lunch and 
pay for it, but you know, that's all you're going to do here. So, you know, you have to kind of think about what portfolio can you build that is going to be interesting to the people that you want to be selling wine to. And that's, I think the biggest thing. So we're, we're going to continue to grow, but we want, we do want to stay small and focused. I want to be big enough to be viable and profitable, but I don't want to be so big that it's going to start to crumble and then producers get unhappy. And yeah, I, maybe this is a pie in the sky type of belief, but I'm hoping that if you do the job right, you don't lose a producer, you know, and maybe that's too romantic of a view. Um, but that's kind of what I'm hoping for. So, so much of it's really a relationship business. It's entirely a relationship business. I, like I said at the beginning, I'd like to take a lot of time and like, do I like this person? Do they like me? Let's talk about other stuff. I, I make a big point about talking about other things that are not related to our business. You know, I want to know about their hobbies. I want to know about what books they're reading. I want to know about, you know, other stuff that's going on because it has to, you have to quickly move that relationship from, uh, I'm interested in, in the wine that you have to, I need you to be interested in me and I need to be interested in you because the wines are going to be what we do, but we also need to have that larger context of our relationship so that if there is a problem with a wine or it's not selling or the relationship isn't working, we have kind of the tools, communication tools to kind of fix that, end it, end it amicably, however it needs to go. Kevin Pike emphasizes relationships for a company called Shotzi. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Levy. Kevin Pike of Shotzi Wines. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.